0: Good afternoon
1: and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. All eyes on Ottawa, where the ongoing truckers' protest has brought the leadership crisis in the Conservative Party to a head. Now, the crowds have thinned out considerably on Parliament Hill, However, you still have trucks blocking streets near Parliament Hill, and some residents and businesses are still unable to go about their business. Police say they're negotiating with organizers, but they are not moving the protesters out by force for fear of causing more violence. Now, We've been reporting on the instances of very negative things happening there, like assaults, like residents being attacked for wearing masks. Uh there was an incident of a rock being thrown at paramedics trying to get to a medical call, desecration of monuments, people relieving themselves on residential laws and swastikas and other hate symbols. Now, uh, no one is saying that there aren't uh, nice people in these protests, but I've been getting, you know, complaints from people who support the convoy for reporting these things. Really? If they happen, they're going to be reported. Uh, and that is one of the issues. It's, it seems very, uh, I don't know, like what we have in the United States where, uh, you know, People have different realities. Uh, I had one email from somebody who said, well, uh, one of the organizers is Jewish, so they, there can't be swastikas there. Well, if you looked at the video from there, there were swastikas there. Meanwhile... Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole faces a caucus revolt with 35 MPs signing a letter calling for a leadership review. And it would require a leadership review vote by conservative MPs as early as tomorrow at their regular caucus meeting. And if more than 50 percent of caucus members vote against him, he'd have to step down immediately. Uh, That is... Pretty dramatic. What do you think of that? There are clearly uh, two factions in the conservative party. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-740. And now I'm joined by Karen Stintz, the CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, the former minister of finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South. Hello, everyone. Hi, Lily. Hey,
2: hey, good afternoon.
1: Uh, we'll begin with John. Uh, some people are describing Aaron O'Toole as dead man walking. Do you agree?
3: Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that just yet, Libby. I think uh, you know, obviously this is the kind of stuff that that, you know, those in the party never want to see aired. Uh, you know, it's it's the proverbial dirty laundry being aired and, and I know that all political parties have to go through this and, and Charles uh you know has, has gone through it in the past. But look, I, I the vote is there. I think Errol Jules made it pretty clear that he's happy to see that this vote is finally gonna take place, likely tomorrow or the next day. Um, you know, the, the the rules say that 50% plus one of caucus is enough for a win. I think he'll end up getting more than that. And I don't think it's a decision for him to make after that. But, you know, there, it's it's finally going to get aired, and it's finally going to get done and, and resolved one way or the other.
1: Okay. Karen, uh, what do you make of this? Well, I actually think that this could be Aaron O'Toole's leadership moment.
4: And because you remember when Christy Clark was battling with her own party in B.C., and she came out successful, and that just really changed her whole political trajectory. So I think if, if, if Aaron O'Toole is able to stare down this vote and come out victorious on the other end, then I think that he will own the podium. And I think he needs to. Um, it, and if he can't win this vote, then he, you know, of course, then he needs to go. Um, it's an unfortunate outcome for the party, I think. Um, but this is this is really his moment. This is his defining moment. And I'm, and I'm, I'm hoping he's victorious in it.
1: Charles Sousa, I mean, we've seen, uh, you know, Pierre Polyevre and Leslin Lewis handing out coffee to the protesters. And that's been described as kind of uh, the, the lead up to their leadership
2: bids. Yeah, it's pretty sad when you think of that as being the base. And, you know, Arnold II has to step up and fight off this revolt. It's, it's strange to me. I mean, this goes back to the old days. I mean, they were smart when they merged. The reform in the West and the progressive conservatives, they dropped the whole progressive term. And it's still the case today. So, you know, be it conversion therapy that became, or the environmental issues, or science. There seems to be a lack of tolerance. And there's a faction in this party who seems to be a better fit with Maxime Bernier and the People's Party. Like, I don't get why they're ruining what they have, which would be the uh, opposition to lead going forward in the next possible election. And they are doing damage to themselves. It it, it shocks me. Uh,
1: You know, it it seems like since that merger, there is really a fault line in the party. Uh, (laughs) They're two very different ideologies, I think. And uh, you also have these influences from the United States and around the world that uh, people coalescing around anger, I would say. Uh, And uh, some people are saying that, you know, maybe there's going to be a Canadian-style tea party. John, do you see that coalescing? Well, I think that's
3: what Maxime Bernier is trying to tap into and unsuccessfully uh, to date. Um, But, you know, as as someone who was quite involved with the uh, Unite the Right movement back in, in 2000, um, when the, when the legacy parties merged, you know, the, there's no question that there was some level of, of the progressive conservative wing and then the reform alliance wing of the party. I thought Stephen Harper was the right leader, uh, obviously, because he was quite successful as, as a leader and prime minister to bring the two parties together and to kind of build that bridge between the, the various factions. And, you know, I think you have mentioned in your monologue, uh, Libby, that there's two factions, there's multiple factions. And, and I would say that multiple factions in most parties, but really the, the sort of the red Tory and the, uh, and the blue tory kind of split has always been there and i think there's a, a leader that that can really try to bridge those two we see that with mike harris we see that with stephen harper and, and others um and 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 doug ford as well uh, currently but i think Aaron O'Toole has been trying to do that i do hope he survives this leadership uh, vote i think he will i think that it'll finally put the, the the this issue to rest because caucus will have had their chance their voice uh, and then he could move on. Whether or not he'll have the the confidence moving forward, but I suspect that that'll be the case. But it's one of those where I think he's been trying to make that that bridge between the various factions work, uh, as most leaders try to do. And then sometimes it's harder than others. And and we're seeing a lot of that from the West, um, you know, because of the Wexit movement and others getting a little bit more, uh, more more sort of solid, solidified uh, in their in their um, in their voice and in the protests within the party.
1: Karen, uh, you know it's. I I've been reading all the kind of commentary on this and uh granted some of it is relying on on uh, anonymous sources but it, there's 35 out of 119 caucus members willing to say so openly. One mm-hmm. of the guys who organized it is a guy who supported Aaron O'Toole in two leadership races who's changed his mind uh and i've read numbers of some people saying they're up to 63 people who will vote against him uh so uh you know i'm i'm it's interesting <laughs> that in this panel people are pretty optimistic about his chances i mean who knows but uh you know looking at it from the outside uh, doesn't look that good no i you know
4: i think that I, 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 whether I'm optimistic or just aspirational, I mean, I, I hope that he can this this beast and, 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 and gain control again of the party because he doesn't have it right now. And he's, he's earned this unfortunate image of being a waffler who doesn't really know what he's doing, he's overmanaged to having no principles. And that's not who he is. And so the Aaron O'Toole that I know, I don't know him as well as John does, but I, I know Aaron, and he is a very um, pragmatic, uh, serious, committed uh, politician to building a, a stronger nation and he's mired in his own party's um, turmoil mm-hmm. and he hasn't been able to beat it back. And so uh, as I say, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that he will be able to, to to be true to himself and be the authentic leader that I think he can be and stare down this rebel caucus and say, you know, what is it that you're trying to achieve here? Because what I do think very, strongly is that if Aaron O'Toole loses this vote, I think it will be a fracture within the party because certainly many conservatives, um, and John can keep me honest, but I think many conservatives in Ontario and probably in Manitoba and NBc aren't as committed uh, to the messaging that's coming out of this rebel group and don't see themselves in that type of conservative party. And so I, I think it is a pivotal moment and I'm just, I'm really hopeful that Aaron can can keep
1: control of the party. Charles Souza I mean okay so he's got this vote tomorrow uh, probably tomorrow and he can survive it with 50 plus one but bottom line is he has to be able to bring these two factions if you want to call them that together and and keep it under control and you know how does he do that he certainly hasn't been able to do that beforehand.
2: And when he tries He's not himself. He doesn't appear to be comfortable in his own skin. The guy's eccentric. He is very much like most Canadians, I believe, middle of the road. He's a bit more right of center. He recognizes the importance of government for you know, that what's required in order to run the country and support the people. But that faction is becoming extreme and very loud. And maybe it is a minority, but they intimidate. And they create, and he himself is being intimidated by taking on certain roles like he's doing with the truckers and some of the convoys. Like there's so much miscommunication and misunderstanding of who he really is because he himself is doing things that he's not really comfortable in doing, I believe. And that is what is unfortunate in this demise is because he is being controlled by some of the unruly activities of the party. And he has to step up and be that leader. Right or wrong, to Karen's point and to John's point, don't change who you are. Stand above them and impose yourself and ensure that the party is reflective of Canadians. And at this point, it's not.
1: Well, you know, um it's certainly reflective of some Canadians and I'm
2: sorry, you're right. <laughs> but
1: uh, and not the majority, yeah. It's uh who knows. Uh and it's certainly reflective, I think of this strain of anger. And uh, I mean, you know, uh, all I'm getting are emails complaining. Uh but it's it's the same as what you see in the United States. Uh they want alternative facts. Uh, it's just, um, I don't know. I mean, uh, do you think, Karen, that that there's this this will be a a, a dominant strain in Canadian politics? No, I don't.
4: Um, and I think that um, I, I think there is a, and I, I spoke to her last week. I think there was a rumbling. And, uh, emerging in Canada with where we're at in the pandemic. And I, I think it's unfortunate because we do need to have a, a, a legitimate conversation about how we are emerging through this um, and without, you know, and being able to ask some questions without being denounced as an anti-vaxxer. I, I think we need to create the space for that conversation because I think it's real. I think the anger in the United States is driven by many different things and none of those things exist in Canada. We, we don't have the extreme wealth, and extreme poverty. We have a, a very solid education system. We don't have the gun culture. We don't have um, the individualistic spirit. We don't have a lot of the, the cultural aspects that the United States have that leads to the extreme anger, which leads to some of the extreme action. But I think in Canada, what we are experiencing and what we need to address is that there is a frustration about where we're at um, in response to this pandemic. And some of the things, quite frankly, don't make sense anymore. And we need to have a way, we need to find a way to have discussions about it without being dismissed, um, as an anti.
1: Yeah, but you know what? A couple of things. First of all, as an aside, when I hear some of the things that some of the people are saying, I wonder how good our education system when they, uh, you know, deny a basic science. And, and it's not that my scientific education is that good. So that's one. But, you know, this is coming, frankly, just as all of these things are being loosened. As of yesterday, restrictions are loosened. And we've had our chief medical officer of health saying we have to learn to live with this. And people are starting to talk about it becoming an, an endemic, even though the numbers are big and will continue to be big. So it's kind of, uh you know, I look at it and you know, generally timing is everything, but it, it all seems to be coming. Is just, you know what? people are coming around if if it's a matter of being sick of it and think it's time to end things i mean it looks like to me uh john everybody's on side
3: yeah. And, you know, your point about sort of people's beliefs and, and education versus non education, there are still people that believe the earth is flat.
1: Exactly. Um,
3: and, and there's people that believe that if you believe in a religion, you're foolish. Right. So there's a lot of that that, that happens. And I think that's the, 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 the beauty of a free world is you can believe that. And, and as long as you're not doing any harm to people. And, um, but it, when it, every once in a while, um, we see both in the U.S., Europe, Canada, there's, there's political leaders that, that get elected and they tap into something that, that, you know, hasn't happened before. We, we saw it with, with Donald Trump with, with when he turned political correctness on his head. Um, you know, love him or hate him or, or whatever you have, he, he tapped into that belief. Uh, and he had a whole bunch of supporters. That, that sort of rallied around him. And of course, he lost the election and, and Joe Biden won. And, and so that, that that theory kind of got got rejected, but he tapped into that. And the same with, with you know, other, other He's leaders. He's still tapping into they, it. Well, he still is. Yeah, he may very well tap into it in 2024, Libby, but I'm just saying that there's leaders that tap into something that, that is just not seen. Uh, and sometimes they get successful, sometimes they don't. And I think that this anger that you talk about as a result of this pandemic, quite frankly, that we're also seeing it through this, this trucker convoy is tapping into something that even forget the, the the rebels of it, the ones that are just over the top crazy about it. There are people that are just normal Canadians who I, I'm hearing are saying, you know what, there's something there that I believe in, Like we should sort s- s- enough of this. And I think political leaders are now trying to follow some of that. And we're seeing that with some of the restrictions being lowered. We just saw, we just heard it from Saskatchewan, Premier, who basically now said that there's going to be something where he's going to allow, he's not going to allow for proof of vaccine, or he's going to diminish the proof of vaccines in Saskatchewan or, at the end of the month. So you're seeing that happening across the country.
1: Uh, Charles, uh, speaking of people being successful, do you think uh, Pierre Polyevre will be able to capitalize on this and take the leadership? I mean, he certainly seems to be, at the moment, the person most out in front.
2: Yeah, you know, I kind of took a lot of respect. I, I enjoyed watching him some years back, but as time proceeded, as time has gone on, and, I, and I've seen him lately doing what he's doing with the convoy and so forth, I've lost respect for the man, and I don't think.
1: Yeah, but you're a stand, liberal.
2: <laughs> no, no, but I, I'm trying. Yeah, I'm okay, I'm trying not to be, but I'm trying to look at what do you stand for, who are you who are you fighting for, and what are you actually saying? I mean. I get you're using, uh, you know, uh, gimmicks to, 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 to look at Trudeau and talk him down, and you're playing the games and this whole notion of printing money and inflation and deflation. Like, I get what he's doing, and he's playing to people's uh, minds, but I think he's going after uh, people's fears and playing it to an extreme. Uh, he may win because he's popular, and he says things, and people like him, and he's got a huge following. I just don't feel that in the end, really, will, he, will he be a DeSantis, gov- like the governor of, of Florida? He stood up and he's doing what, and that's what Saskatchewan's trying to be, like him. But Pellier, if he's trying to be like Trump in some respects, and he's not. And I think he'll fail as a result.
1: Okay, well, you're saying that a lot of people like him. That the one thing I I hear against him is that he is not likable. But um, is this just going to play into to the liberals, Karen? Well, yeah,
4: if, there's no question. If if Aaron O'Toole doesn't win this vote um, and the party fractures, and um, it absolutely plays into the liberals, because then where where do people go that want to vote um, for? a government that has a legitimate chance of forming an opposition. And so, you know, it is, it, it's an interesting time, um, for sure in Canadian politics. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, when Pierre was at sort of the attack dog, he, he, per, he performed his role very well. I think he might be moving into a more ambitious role, which, um, it, it you know, anger does subside and, and it, you, uh, it, it's hard to, it's hard to keep people angry. And it, it, and it's it's a dangerous strategy to to try to to capitalize on anger and keep people angry to keep yourself in a position of power. And so, it certainly was something I hope doesn't happen. Um, and again, you know, strategy not a hope is not a strategy, but it it will definitely benefit the liberals if the conservatives implode themselves.
1: Well, yeah. Um, so, uh, a couple of other things, uh, before we wrap up talking about this, uh, the police in Ottawa have come under fire saying, you know, they're not moving. The, the protest is ongoing. Uh, the crowds have thinned out, but, uh, trucks are still blocking the area near Parliament Hill or part of the area, And uh, uh, some of these people are talking about coming back on the weekend. Uh, Do you think, uh, you know, people in Ottawa, their lives are disrupted. We just heard Premier Doug Ford saying, hey, let these people go about their lives. So uh, what do you think, Charles, should the police, you know, move these people out? Yeah,
2: Absolutely. I know I I, I appreciate and recognize the protests for, for, you know, being democratic, respectful, and people's voices should be heard. We all uh, appreciate and support that. But I think Yasser Nackby, the MP for Ottawa, said it well in the House. I think Lisa McLeod and here in Ontario, who represents the area, also said it well. You're not you're hurting people. In other words, it's one thing for you to stand and be heard and fight for your rights, but don't do it at the, at the elimination of rights of others. Don't put others in jeopardy. And that's what they're doing to some extent. And when you start using elements that start to threaten elected officials, yeah, you're now, you're now moving the needle. And, I, you know, it's not the majority of the convoy that's, that's doing this. Obviously, it's, a, it's others uh, that are, you know, unsavory elements that have come into this. Uh, but that has to be kept in check. And I think the police should do their job.
1: Hmm. Uh, do uh, both of you agree with that? That the police should uh, move these people out at the well, risk of in- uh, uh, at the risk of violence. My, my sense
3: uh, is that you know, look, the police are obviously in negotiations, and they always have been from the very beginning, and, and with the organizers. And, I, and you know, we—it's one thing for us to be able to comment on that in, in some ways. And I know that the police want to get rid of the, the protesters. Want, want Ottawa to come back to to some level of normalcy for the sake of the citizens. But I think that de-escalation is one of the key things that we've heard from the mayor, from the police chief in Ottawa, which is you don't want to do anything. You get the measure of a protest. You get a measure of who's organizing, who's there, and you deal with it in a way that you sort of de-escalate it and you negotiate ways out. And I think that's that's, they're in the process of doing that. But I would say, too, Libby, that protests, doesn't matter what protest it is, run the risk of turning against themselves the message, right? The message of what the truckers' convoy, for, for better or for worse, is absolutely heard. People understood it. They got it. But overstaying their welcome or doing things that they're that that are doing that's unlawful or a threat or, or, in some cases, all of a sudden then Canadians start turning against you, right? They start turning against the the overall message or the overall protest. And I think sometimes protesters realize that, yeah, you know what, they, they absolutely do what they should be doing. You get their message out. But, But also do it at a time, get in, give your message, get out, and then Canadians will have a a a more fulsome appreciation of the message and of what you're trying to do. And sometimes it it can be a counter counter purposes.
1: Uh, Let's hear from Kathy in Niagara. Hi, Kathy. Hi. You're on the air.
5: Go ahead. I'm just, I'm just calling because I'm so disappointed with Canadians. I never thought I'd see the day when Canadians would act like a bunch of stupid Americans protesting in Ottawa like they are. I mean, it's one thing to protest, but they're being real, r- ridiculous. They, they, they have all these different reasons why they're protesting. It started out one thing, and now it's 12 other things. And O'Toole, I think, is an idiot going up there and taking their side. What is wrong with him? Doesn't he believe in law and order? That's not right. I wouldn't
1: vote for him if he's the last guy on earth. <laughs> okay, Kathy, I think we know where you stand. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a, a sort of a, a, a pox on all your houses. Uh, what about the Prime Minister's response? He's taken a very hard line. So first of all, uh, they said it was just an extremist fringe. And uh, I think that perhaps they misjudged it, uh, or the extent of it. And now he's uh, refusing to talk to any of the people involved. So Charles, is, is that the right stance?
2: You know, I thought he did a good job, and I went to a meeting yesterday um, to a photographer. She was she was taking pictures, and she, first thing she asked me was, so what do you think about this convoy? And I go, it's funny, I, I was on my way to get my booster shot the day it happened, and I'm still recovering from it. I'm doing my part, and I'm surprised these anti-vaxxers are protesting. She goes, it's not anti-vax. It's about freedom, and this is the problem. Trudeau is talking to them about the... Uh, inevitable message that has come out, and she is telling me that Trudeau is deflecting r- responses, and I don't believe he is. I think the problem here is no—it was poor planning. There's no coherent purpose anymore. It, w- it became an anti-vax protest, not just about uh, policies, not to be able to travel back and forth for the truckers. It's descended to the common—the lowest common denominator. Some of the extremists that have showed up because there's no real leadership here. And then they attack the media because they don't believe the media is reporting their side of the story effectively, but then, they, but then they don't want that media to show up. So it's really frustrating when you're attacking the prime minister who is standing before you saying, I'm the elected official, we're not a minority government, we have vaccines that are required to help us get through this pandemic, we're imposing these laws. If you don't like it, vote us out. But now you're going to come in with an MOU, and you're going to demand the governor general and overthrow the government? Oh, that's and just ridiculous! That's nonsense, and that's why I'm saying there's there's a time there's protests, but then there's a time when these the police and security have to step up.
0: Uh,
1: Karen, do you what do you think of the prime minister's response? Did he misjudge us? I, I completely think he misjudged it. To be honest. Because, the you know, the, the message, that,
4: the narrative that we were told was that vaccines would get us out of this. Vaccines are not getting us out of this. They're not. They're mitigating the, the impact of it, but that's very different than getting us out of it. And so I think to dismiss and just to go back to a vaccine mandate is missing where Canadians might be at right now. And, like, questioning the legitimacy of a vaccine mandate is... Hundred percent appropriate, given that vaccines do not stop the spread of Omicron, and so you can still say to Canadians, "Get vaccinated," because it's going to blunt the impact. But you cannot say to Canadians, "Get vaccinated to stop the spread," and that's what we all bought into two months ago. And that's not well. The case that right it now.
1: may have been true two months ago.
4: It may have been true two months ago, but it's certainly not true now. And so, and Canadians are, you know, questioning. Okay, well, then what? And so, I, I think that the Prime Minister needs to understand that we're in a different place now than we were at the beginning of the election that he fought and and won a minority government on we are in a different place and he needs to come to the place we're at hmm.
1: interesting uh and uh, uh, ironic too that that he and two of his kids have, have contracted the virus mm-hmm. and they're fully vaccinated right but they're also not sick or right. i don't we don't know what's happening with his kids but but he's not sick so that's the point that's, and that's the point for many of us. Like here, I am. I'm not sick. I might have COVID. I've been fully vaccinated, um, and
4: and and and. How, I, but I'm in quarantine for five days.
1: Well, yeah. Except um, the person you give it to might die of it. Right. But, but again, the if
4: they're three times vaccinated, so it, it becomes a question of uh, like, if I'm, what does a vaccine mandate even mean? Is it two shots? Is it three shots? Is it two shots in COVID? Is it three shots in COVID? Like, what, what does a vaccine passport mean anymore? It doesn't have any meaning anymore.
2: Well, I, if I may, Libby, and I appreciate Karen's point, and that's the argument that I hear from the other side all the time. This is about getting us into herd immunity, and the sooner we all get vaccinated, the sooner we get out of this pandemic, because all of us are suffering. All of us that are being vaccinated and doing our part, we want out of this too. And the sooner others join in and move forward, sh- the sooner we open up the beds and hospitals, the better we'll all be, and that thing does all. And
1: you know what, Charles? You have just given me the segue into our next segment because I'm <laughs> looking. We're over time. You're talking about opening up the beds in hospitals, and after we say goodbye and go to a break, uh, you know, hospitals were supposed to start resuming non-urgent surgeries yesterday. Well, have they? We're going to take a look at that. After the break, uh, I'm sure we'll still be talking about this and who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Very exciting day. Right now, I'd like to thank Charles Sousa, John Capobianco and Karen Stintz. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Bye Okay, Uh, we are taking a break. And as I said, when we come back, we will talk about uh, this um, much-hyped resumption of non-urgent surgeries. Is it happening? Where is it happening? Where is it not happening? When we come back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. Last week, the Ontario government gave us the good news that non-urgent surgeries were set to resume yesterday. But have they? We're hearing from some stakeholders that this is not what's happening. Some hospitals haven't yet received any clear guidance from the province on how to resume such surgeries and if this is the case, you know, it wouldn't be the first time the government makes an announcement with big fanfare without talking to the people involved who actually have to carry this out. I'd like to hear from you. Are you waiting for some kind of procedure or something? And where are you at with that? Uh, or a loved one? Or in general? 416-360-0740. Toll free one eight six six 740 4740 Now let's go to... To Laurie Marshall, who is the CEO of the Chatham-Kent Health Alliance, and Dr. Adam Duclo, who is the interim executive vice president and chief medical officer at the London Health Sciences Centre. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Hi Thanks for having us. Uh, so, Laurie, you're saying that uh, in your neck of the woods, uh, surgeries are not resuming. Not
6: yet. And uh, interestingly enough, we just received the direction across the province uh, a few moments ago, I would say, uh, before this call. Uh, and it's uh, really laying out uh, a gradual uh, approach to resumption uh, to surgery. But at this stage uh, in public hospitals, the focus continues to be on emergent and urgent surgeries, diagnostic imaging and cancer screening, uh, ambulatory clinics. Uh, and uh, we are to continue uh, with a, really a hold on our non-emergent and non-urgent surgeries at this time.
1: Well, uh if diagno- One of the things that's really been delayed has been diagnostics. And I know that uh, oncologists are really worried that without the screening, people will be presenting with much more advanced cases. So uh, isn't it good news that diagnostics anyway uh, and screening are starting to resume, Dr. Ducolo?
7: It's definitely definitely good news that things are starting to resume and we're seeing a very gradual uh, reduction in the impact uh, of COVID on our acute care hospitals, um, and so we're now uh, allowed to resume where we can. Um, but at the same time, the resources, uh, both the space and the people resources in hospitals are still extremely stretched, um, so it's, it is a cautious optimism uh, when we talk about reopening or, or, or restarting.
1: Dr. Ducloso uh, at London Health Sciences Centre, what are you restarting or, or starting to do a little more of? So as as
7: my colleague Lori mentioned, we just received the official direction today. We did have uh, some early word from Ontario Health and Ontario Health West late last week that this was coming, um and so started our started our planning. Um and we have slightly increased our operating room grids at London Health Sciences Center, but that's still focusing on only urgent and emergent work. Um and so we're still really focused on the most urgent and, and emergent cases because of the constraints we're facing.
1: What about uh, screening and uh, di- diagnostic imaging?
7: So, we had reduced our diagnostic imaging by about 10 to 20 percent, depending on the modality, uh, whether it was CT scans or MRI uh, or ultrasound uh, when Directive 2 was released uh, earlier in the month of January. Um, and over the course of this week, uh, we will start to, to gradually increase those services. Um, but our, our meetings and our planning will, will literally be taking place in the next 24 hours now that we have the official directive.
1: Okay. I, I just want to, for people listening, there's a difference between screening and diagnostic, And uh, screening is like a mass program. Where you know you're say, having mammograms, uh, looking for breast cancer, and diagnostic is if you think something's there, you're looking for something in particular. Uh, let us take a call from Emily and Goderich. Hello, Emily. Hi,
5: Libby. Um, <clears throat> I was scheduled to have a colonoscopy done on February the 3rd. Um, I was put on, I was speaking with the hospital, they said, uh, This is previous, I'll say two weeks ago. They said it would maybe be on hold. I had a call yesterday, and I have my colonoscopy as scheduled. Oh, that's great news.
1: That's great news.
5: So, obviously, some hospitals certainly got the word, or maybe were more diligent to get out to their people.
1: Okay, well, um, that's great news for you. I'm glad to hear it. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, well, uh, again, a colonoscopy would be uh, diagnostic or, or screening. Dr. Duclo?
7: It, it depends on the oh, yeah. indication. Yeah. Um, and, and with the advent of what's called FIT testing, um, that fits into the algorithm as, uh, algorithm as well. And if someone has a positive FIT test, then they, they move on to colonoscopy. Um, and But FIT testing is so good that often when a, a positive FIT test will mean the, the colonoscopy will also be positive.
1: Okay. Uh, Lori, so what are the kinds of surgeries that people are waiting for in your area? I would say the the major kinds of
6: surgeries that aren't progressing at this stage would be things like hip or knee replacements, uh, things like cataracts, Um, some gynecological uh, procedures. In general, we speak about uh, elective surgeries as being pre-scheduled surgeries. Uh, And sometimes people think the term elective means it's optional. Uh, but really, elective surgeries are still required. And we know uh, that individuals are waiting for those surgeries. They've uh, certainly made uh, arrangements uh, to make sure that they can be in hospital, in some cases needing to uh, retain child care or something along those lines. So we don't take uh, cancelling surgery lightly, I would say, at any hospital across uh, the province. And uh, really look forward at the stage when we'll be able Uh, to start uh, resuming those surgeries. But it's possible at this point in time, given that we're doing urgent and emergent surgeries, sometimes uh, someone's individual case, even though it might be on the list of the normal things we would say would be elective, sometimes because of their patient condition, that person moves up and they become more urgent.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of those things that are, quote, elective, you know, there are people who, who can't move around, because they need their joint replacements. Uh, Dr. Duclo, are, are those the things that are on hold mostly at your facility?
7: It would be yeah, very similar types of uh, types of surgeries that have been on hold. You can add things like sports medicine, again, another orthopedic uh, procedure to that. Uh, cataracts in the City of London is mostly done at uh, St. Joseph's, or exclusively done at St. Joseph's Hospital, uh, but they've been on hold in their facility as well. One of the important pieces, and this just adds on to what Lori was saying is that our, we rely on our providers um, to continually reassess their wait lists. And if someone becomes more urgent uh, than they were previously to uh, to upgrade that and then to, to do whatever we can to get them access to the procedure or surgery that they need.
1: And and uh, how often does that happen? I mean, that's, on the other hand, that's a worry that people have, that you keep people waiting and something gets a lot worse.
7: It's a delicate balance. There's no question about it, especially when you're dealing with the volumes of surgeries that you have in a large community hospital like Chatham or in a uh, in a large tertiary care centre like London Health Sciences Centre. I don't have exact numbers in front of me, though, as, as to how often that happens.
1: Uh, Laurie, what about in your area? Uh, well,
6: what I would say is perhaps I can give a picture of how our operating room is currently working. So we normally have uh, six operating rooms that are running. Uh, on a daily basis when uh, when things are uh, running at normal. And uh, during uh, this period, we've been really only operating two of those six rooms. And uh, that has been uh, for the urgent and emergent cases. For the most part, I would say uh, we've been able to keep up with the demand. Uh, there are reviews that are done on a weekly basis. Every surgeon submits uh, their cases that they would like to complete, that they feel in, in their case... Uh, meets the urgency criteria. They're uh, reviewed uh, by our Chief of Surgery and our Director of Surgery. Uh, and, uh, and then uh, those cases have been able uh, to be done. But certainly I would say that in uh, the recent uh, weeks, Uh, We've seen the numbers uh, starting to grow, and so uh, we are hopeful uh, that uh, not only will we be able to uh, resume the elective surgeries, uh, but we may in the shorter term uh, need to look at even
1: increasing uh, our access to urgent care uh, because uh, those numbers are growing. Um, uh, Final question, Dr. Duclo, how big a factor is staff burnout in this?
7: So staff, staff burnout is something that has certainly increased, uh, through the, throughout the pandemic. And like society in general, um, you know, people are getting more and more wary of, of being part of this pandemic. And certainly those that are on the front lines, uh, have been, I think have been impacted, uh, most significantly. Our most recent health human resources crunch related to the number of staff that either had COVID, uh, during the past, uh, four to six weeks or were off due to high risk contacts. Um, so that added to the burnout. Uh, burnout uh, implications of the pandemic so as we uh, shift our shift our focus to recovery uh, from the pandemic uh, staff retention um, and uh, you know get reducing the amount of burnout, uh, helping our teams uh, cope and uh, will be very important if we want an effective recovery from the pandemic.
1: Okay, um, we are out of time for this segment. Uh, I'm wishing you both all the best as we try to get things back on track here. And thank you so much for updating us, Lori Marshall and Dr. Adam Duclo. Bye-bye. Thank you for having us. OK, uh, we are going to take another break and a more pleasant topic. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Lunar New Year. It is celebrated by millions and millions of people across Asia, around the world, here in the GTA. And uh, we'll talk about it when we come back. Uh, we're heading into the year of the tiger.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. And
1: gong hai phat choy. Happy Lunar New Year. It is celebrated across Asia and around the world and by a huge number of people here in the GTA from the Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese, and Malay communities. We're entering the Year of the Tiger, which I think is auspicious and is predicted to be better then the last few years, not that that is a very high bar. Celebrations for the new year include cultural events, uh, most of which I think are still online, virtual, and lots of food. Uh, numbers to call. I'd like to hear from you. How are you celebrating or do you have questions about it or uh, whatever? related to the Lunar New Year. The number is 416-360-0740. Toll free, 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Clement Fung, who is the manager of the Hong Hongxing restaurant in Toronto, and Michael Grit, the centre manager at the Chinese Cultural Centre of Greater Toronto. Thank you for being with us. I appreciate it.
8: Well, thank you for having us. Thank you for having us.
1: Okay, let us begin with Michael. So, um, what can you tell us about the holiday? Um, How long has it been celebrated for? And what are the main things that people do?
9: Well, I think it's been celebrated for for centuries. Um, The history of the uh, Chinese New Year, they actually call it the Spring Festival in China, uh, goes back for literally for centuries. Um, But it's evolved into a celebration where uh, to honor ancestors, uh, there's family reunions, there's street parties, street parades, fireworks, and lots and lots and lots of food. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, I Just one thing, we, we got an email from a listener who said, you know, it's not just the Chinese New Year, it's the Lunar New Year, so, so we're going with that. Uh Clement Fung, there, there are special foods which symbolize special things for the New Year, and they're actually different in the different cultures. Um, what have you got?
8: Yeah, so in our Chinese culture, there's a lot of foods that symbolize um, wealth, prosperity, health, and all that stuff. And it's mainly derived from um, words that are similar in um, sounds where um, it represents such things. So in our culture, how to name certain dishes are based on wishing prosperity, wishing health, wishing um, uh, health and all these things to people. So when they consume the dish, it's like, oh, you're, you're eating prosperity or you're eating to have good health, you're eating to have... Good luck and all that stuff.
1: So what's your menu?
8: Our menu uh, right now consists of six dishes. We have um, bread claws. We have a ginger scallion fried cod. We have a garlic beef tenderloin. We have a mushroom medley, a um, prosperity lobster, and we have like a golden fried
1: rice. Mm-hmm. No longevity noodles. That's one of the things I keep reading about. Uh, long noodles for a long life. And when you eat them, it's even better if you don't bite through them. Uh,
8: it is. Um, it's just that it's very, very common. It's not just for the New Year. Usually people eat it for uh, birthdays as well. Uh, it symbolizes like a long life and all that. Um, but this year we intended to kind of play with other things. Um we brought back the crab claws, which is a very, uh, very well-known dish that a lot of people like. And uh, it's usually eaten during uh, celebrations um, so that we can kind of push these new or traditional flavor, traditional dishes to everyone to kind of get to know our culture.
1: Uh, and uh interesting you know last night i was uh talking to a friend who's vietnamese and and i said to her well are you are you having longevity noodles and she said no that's chinese and i said what about a whole fish she said no that's chinese and they have some kind of very complicated uh rice cake with Mung beans. I'm always mm-hmm. interested in the in the food part of it, and and uh, I know that I was looking at a Singaporean lun- Lunar New Year recipe, and it was basically a curry. So um, all kinds of different things. Michael, uh, can you tell us anything about the year of the tiger?
9: Well, the year of the tiger um, is supposed to be people who are born that uh, during the year thought to be. Uh, like natural born leaders um, they're often to, uh, seen as brave uh, thrill seeking um, courageous energetic uh, It's supposed to be a very positive energetic um, um, sort of go forward kind of uh, kind of a year um, so the year of the tiger is uh, is a very very good year
1: uh-huh and uh, is there a focus on prosperity in the year of the tiger?
9: Yes, absolutely. Uh, year of the tiger, uh, just uh, some of the examples of those who have been uh, born in the year of the tiger who are very prosperous include uh, Queen Elizabeth, uh, <laughs> Lady Gaga, Tom Cruise, even our own Sean Mendez. So, uh, the year of the tiger is uh, is seen as a very prosperous year,
1: and th- they also in their in the system of this uh, uh, zodiac, uh, it- it, it's, uh, you know, the year of the tiger would be good for people born in certain other years. I was very happy to hear I'm, I was born in the, a year of the horse, and that's supposed to be good in a year of the tiger. Yes. Um, I'm not
9: quite sure how that all works in terms of which year is good for which year. I was born in the year of the rat, and apparently that goes very well with the tigers. So, um, so it, uh, it's a good thing.
1: Mm-hmm um uh clemen uh yes. do you find that um that most people really go all out to celebrate this? I think it's it's more
8: of a tradition and spending time with family. A lot of people kind of use uh, especially like nowadays use like any an excuse to kind of celebrate and and get together now um even through virtual or in person and traditionally the Chinese New Year. Uh, lunar New Year is all about, you know, celebrating the year and what happened during the year. And because it's based on the lunar calendar, um, the days are not set as are uh, the regular calendar where we're known. Um, the lunar calendar is based on basically the lunar cycle, whereas the calendar that we know is based on the sun's position to like the stars, basically. So next year's Lunar New Year actually falls on January. It's like January 20th or something like that instead of February 1st this year. And so that it, it kind of gets hard to uh, figure out uh, when it is. And people would always kind of um, plan the days before, a little bit before and a little bit after just for the whole celebration. So there's actually a big get-together dinner um really right before the New Year. So it's like a New Year's Eve get-together and it symbolizes family and you want to get together to make sure everyone's safe and sound and all that. Um, Because back in the day, a lot of um, people within the family would leave their home to go abroad or go somewhere else to um, work and school. But for that specific day, everybody's got to be back and everybody's got to see each other to kind of show themselves as safe and sound. Uh,
1: and how long does it last, Michael, the New Year celebrations? It
9: can actually last for, uh, for up to two weeks. I think it depends on where it's celebrated, but there are some um, um, areas in the world where they will actually uh, do it for two weeks. Uh, the first seven days usually are considered public holidays, but there are some that will finish um, uh, on the first full moon of the, of the year. Uh, and this year, it's going to be on uh, February the 15th. So it could be a two-week uh, celebration.
1: That sounds like fun. What What are you doing at the Chinese Cultural Centre?
9: Well, we've got a... Um, we're, of course, we're still doing a lot of things online. Um, we're doing a virtual Year of the Tiger celebration on February the 7th. But we're also opening it up to uh, limited seating with the new... Um, uh, relaxation, of some of the restrictions. So we we have a um, a virtual New Year's year, or a Lunar New Year celebration that we're going to be live streaming. We're also going to be uh, inviting uh, people to come and see it actually on the big screen of the PCL Theater as well. So we're doing a, a very limited in person, but also a live a live streaming event on February the seventh at eight pm.
1: And, uh, Clement, uh, I think last year it was all takeout that you were offering, but you probably have, uh, people coming into the restaurant this time.
8: Yeah, um, because, uh, the restrictions lifted and, uh, we can open dine in again. A lot of people are coming in for the, the dinners as well. So everybody's celebrating, you know, at home and also, um, at the restaurant.
1: Okay. Uh, happy Lunar New Year to you, and thank you so much for uh, telling us more about the holiday. Thanks to Michael Grit and Clement Fung. Thank you very much. And that is all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.